come to roost, they are devoured. Slim pickings when we want to make a quiche. I saw a lady at the Walmart with her daughter on a leash. I saw doggies splashing water on the beach. Well, who am I to preach? And what's my speech? The only chickens flew. Welcome to Lulu. Last time I said they always come for children and the desperate. They usually hate being right. And I still do. They don't consider high school seniors to be children. I think they're much older for their ages than I was when I was a high school senior. But desperation. It's abundantly clear to me that Duncan Coons checks the desperation box that he's stuck in a situation, maybe a life, maybe a world, that doesn't make room for the protestations or growth of the heart. I remember feeling exactly that way in my isolated mountain home a decade and a half ago. It wasn't a lack of space. It was a squeeze that was put on me in the wide open. If someday soon I end up at Green Meadows Cemetery, looking down at a tombstone with Duncan's name on it, there might as well be a footnote at the bottom that says Storm Chaser could have done more. So I've made a decision to intervene. I'm ready to call it a decision. Now I need to decide what that means in a real, actionable, practical way that hopefully saves a life and hopefully doesn't cost me my own. But that's enough navel-gazing for now. Actually, no, one more thing. I'm realizing it could be helpful to my archive here to lay out precisely what it is that's happened, what happened to me, what I saw and survived. In the murky years between being in Duncan Coon's position and being whatever it is I am now. So that's another recent decision. Next time I plug in this microphone, my next installment to these accounts, I should say some words about how the name Storm Chaser came to be. It sounds like hell to revisit those places. There's a lot of confusion and loss back there. Lots of ghosts who come visit me sometimes in my ear like sleep paralysis demons who won't hear my apologies. If I look at the people of Lulu and I see my own ghosts, I should name them. Name the ghosts. So reluctantly, that will be forthcoming. One ghost is that of my parents' marriage. Few relationships of any kind survive that ordeal on the Montana mountains. Well, I'm seeing the wheels on all kinds of relationships rattle now, here in Lulu. I recognize the sound of that rattle. Let's give a moment to the rattle as it's lived in real time. 
for one by pharmacist Carl O'Connell. My ex-wife's birthday was like the week after New Year's, so everybody was still clinging on to their resolutions about eating or drinking or anything fun. So her parties were always pretty lame. My birthday is the social event of the season. Drum up all the people, get everybody down to the barbecue palace, get a flyer up on the community board. Happy birthday, Carl, up on the wall. And nobody misses it. The unofficial kickoff of the summer. And I found my birthday present. And I've been patient. And now... It's watch time. (laughs) And I make a wish, and I blow out the candles, and Marianne comes up to me with this not a beautiful cardboard box. Not like the box I saw in the shed. This was a flat, white envelope. Like the kind they send bills in. And it's Tickets. Concert tickets for the Violent Femmes in Spokane, where I grew up. Which isn't a watch. I was distracted. People start asking me things like, aren't you having a good time? And what's wrong? And you looking for something? Yes, I am looking for something. Looking from wrist to wrist to wrist. And later that night, when I checked the shed, it was exactly what I was afraid of. Who has my birthday watch? And why? I spend a lot of time armchair analyzing the O'Connells, whose marital discord was, in popular opinion, a huge issue long before Hooper's Hill, the crises of the day. Now we see what was already sour being exacerbated and I want to know all about it. I understand that retreat to memory isn't an uncommon response to adversity. Police Sergeant O'Connell is having a lot of memories lately. Sergeant Marianne O'Connell. I was 18. I was waitressing at this old diner, Toby's Drive-In. My dad was the mayor, and he had all kinds of other plans for me. But me and him weren't of like minds at the time, so... So I'm a car hop at an empty diner. And I'm sitting in a booth smoking a cigarette, and I'm looking around, and I'm starting to really notice things. Lemonade spelled wrong on the menu. Tartar spelled wrong. Ceiling's kind of yellow. Tiles are worn out. Sign out front's bent from a big rig backing into it. Even the pricing's in weird denominations like coffee 211 or a side of ketchup 17 cents. And I feel this sudden sense this place is going to close soon. I need to look for a new job. And finally in comes this old regular Ray. And Ray wants his usual coffee and a corn dog. Guy's kind of a 
Well, I don't know the right word. Somebody who needs looking after. And he sits in his spot. And he tells me his joke again. And he asks to use the phone, like always. And he places his pretend call to his pretend person. And he talks his pretend business. And I say, okay, Ray, owner's coming in. Go back to your spot. And he says to me, with this sad matter-of-factness, this place is going to close soon. Wow, what? What changed between today and yesterday? What are we picking up on here? Where is this coming from? And finally I say, why do you think that, Ray? And he gestures grandly like, have you seen this place? And then it's maybe two weeks later, and the owner comes in and guess what he tells me? And I just visited Carl at the pharmacy. And I had a unsettling inclination to remember all that. Try to remember the last time I saw a line in there. Must it be a constant dirge for what is gone? What's up with the urge to squeeze the ghost? It's strange to love the echo when the source was just a noise. It's strange to want the echo, not the voice. Step in the same river twice. jet black beard to my face and saddled up at the bar top of the saloon. I ordered a PBR and a tall can and set out to learn about the local population. I had a whole backstory all lined up, complete with anecdotes designed to steer conversations toward information I especially wanted to know. But Rick Langerhands wouldn't have taken any kind of nudge. I maybe said five words to him before he launched into a diatribe about himself what concerned an impending personal fiasco. So he has the fever. Baby fever. He said. So about a year and a half ago, we were at the block party and Sally got kind of drunk and was kind of being, I thought, overly friendly with the guy that runs a pharmacy, a dude Carl. I'm still pissed. And he said. 
just like it was the most natural thing in the world to do, I make an appointment. Get clipped. <laughs> Down there. Get rid of my swimmers. And he said, This Thursday I gotta dip from work early. I guess she locked us in for like a consultation at a fertility clinic. And I just hope to God it's not the same doctor. With her account of it, owner of the Lulu Feed and Seed, affectionately called Sally's Pet Shop, Sally Langerhands. This is how I find out. Sitting there at the fertility clinic and the doctor comes back like he's just been through something weird. And he sits and he says, <clears throat> Rick, is there something you'd like to say? Rick shakes his head. The doctor looks at him like, Okay, Rick. He turns to me and he says, It's my professional opinion that your conception challenges have a lot to do with Mr. Langerhand's vasectomy. And we all just stare at each other for like 49 years. And finally I go, Rick? And he goes, Uh... And he stands, and he runs away, runs out of the room. And I did not go home. I will not be a stereotype of some catatonic sad sack. So I go to my mom's place in Chelan, and me and her rent a jet ski, get out the floaties, and have a really somber time at the water park. Woohoo. Well... It takes a couple of days, but Rick finally breaks the radio silence, and it's 11 million calls and texts. And he says, Sally, I want to get it undone. I'm the worst. Please call me. I haven't pulled the trigger on it, but the writing's on the wall, isn't it? Meanwhile, I'm going inner tubing. Maybe go meet a beach guy and get him to... Tug me around. Orchardists Angus and Lena Jackson tell a joke at social functions. Whichever one of them gets to it first, they go, We've been happily married for five years. Oh, we've been married for 42 years. We've been happily married for five of them. That always gets a good, sensible chuckle. Today, Angus Jackson stopped by the roadside produce market. He picked out a surprise bouquet, counted out the small change in his pocket, and put back the flowers where he found them. He made small talk with the man at the register, Maverick Brown, brother of Chesterfield Brownie Brown, like he'd just come to say hi. Jackson then climbed into his truck and headed home, the young son of the cashier bearing witness to all of this as he organized a display of Jackson's own apples, which Angus personally dropped off yesterday. Maverick Brown snapped at his boy as if he were fending off an accusation. I would have given him the flowers for free if we could afford the laws. Half of his apples were mush anyhow. Keep the pretty ones on top. The boy resumed his business without a word. Huge loss, those apples, Maverick muttered under his breath. For the record, the apples weren't mealy and gross when Angus Jackson dropped them off. The assortment the orchardist was able to put together 
out of yet another paltry crop had been perfectly up to the Jackson family apples high standards. But that was when the apples were loaded up for sale yesterday morning. Also for the record, those apples practically fall apart in your hand now. Not good enough for the roadside produce market. Orchardist Angus Jackson. It's time to look her in the eye and tell her. Lena, the orchard's going under. Gonna have to pull the trees out. She's gonna hate me a minute. And then she's gonna say, how? How are we gonna keep the land, the house, the barn, the animals? What else can we do? Go be Walmart greeters? So I run into Brownie at the store. He pulls me aside, says he recalls how I sold Dad's old Massey Ferguson last fall. Antique tractor from the 50s. Have to make it through the winter. And Brownie wants to know if I had plans for the space in the barn. Wants to talk rental. I say, man, I could use a buck. But then I really look at him. He looks weirder than usual. Weird expression, kind of standing funny. So I say, what do you got in mind? His eyeballs bulge out. And then he says a number. Big number. Must be trouble. I need to communicate my warning to Duncan Coons without blowing my cover. Blowing my cover has a horrible mouthfeel. I need to calibrate my communication. Do I speak to Duncan in person? Absolutely not. Do I alert the Coons family at large? Hmm. More people is more variables. I don't like variables. Do I send a private message of some kind? An email? A sharpie scrawled note on a box of pizza I could anonymously send to him? Seems like a bit much. I don't know if he would trust that. I put on latex gloves. I create a handwritten letter in expertly disguised penmanship. This reads, Duncan, urgent, do not go to Hooper's Hill, life or death, in all uppercase letters. I use a sponge and river water to seal the envelope to minimize my own DNA traces on the document. And then like a dummy, I walk around with the letter in my pocket all day absent-mindedly clutching it every time I think of my predicament, which is constantly. Now the beautiful memo is a sweaty, crumpled wad I'll need to redo. And yet here is time, a ticket. In the meantime, the operations on Hooper's Hill march along. If last week the largest spire towered impossibly high over Lulu, it is now doubly impossible in size growing up toward the sun as if it were an organic thing. My olfactometer measures how stinky things are. Its readings say what was already a pungent odor emanating from the hill has more than tripled in intensity since my first measuring of it. My nose agrees. The river water. When I dip the sponge in the river, I don't think I was just freaking myself out. 
The water to my eye appeared strangely viscous and perhaps to have a metallic sheen to it. No more like you see rainbows and oil puddles in parking lots. The kind that forms under the police sergeant's squad car on the driveway. I sent off a sample of the river water for testing, again scribbling the word, urgent. And the workers. What had been an ominous recent silence on Hooper's Hill has been broken by incessant clatter, which is also ominous. Last Tuesday, an airdrop of what I assumed to be grocery provisions came in via helicopter, a type of helicopter I cannot for the life of me identify. Must be a new toy. There's otherwise been no movement in or out of the compound. Until, with nothing short of shock, I witnessed a worker rappel down the side of the tall wall unprecedented. Upon reaching the ground, he stumbled toward town like he was being controlled, like some kind of uncoordinated flesh puppet. I don't know how to read it yet. I deferred to my training and watched via video feed as his actions unfolded. The meanderer, straggler, refugee, who knows. He made it all the way to Pine Street like that. Swaying, falling, standing, resuming. He made it all the way to the feed and seed. Sally's pet shop. What happened next was witnessed firsthand by family practitioner Bobby Trout. Dr. Bobby Trout. He just kind of stumbled into Sally's pet shop. One of these horrible men. And he looked dizzy. Or woozy. Or maybe like he couldn't really see. And he comes directly to me. Like he knows me. Like he wants me specifically. And he's swaying there like a foot away from me. Like some kind of sleepwalker. And I ask him. Do you know your name? And he just smiles at me. And I ask him, do you know where you're from? And he nods at me like he thinks so. And I ask him, can you speak? Sometimes. And I say, do you know who I am? Dr. Bobby Trout, Blackbird Clinic. Do you need medical attention? I think... Maybe. And then there was a... something. A loud humming noise and a buzzing. I think, I think from outside. And then... Zap! Just... Blankness. And it didn't feel like any time had passed at all, but I blinked my eyes and when I opened them, I was in my bed in the middle of the night with a new cat toy for Romper in my hand. I think I've been having memory trouble. I went and got myself looked at and nothing came up. I... I give Sally a call the next morning at the shop. She just lets it ring through. 
and I leave her a voicemail saying I had um, a, a personal issue there in her pet shop. And it would be helpful to me to check out whatever her security cameras had to say. I hope she's okay. She still hasn't called me back. I sit on the ground outside my yurt, listening to the wolves and watching the satellites. The feral cat approaches from the dark. He flops down in my lap and goes meow, which means pet me. I do as I'm asked. Next time on top of Hooper's Hill, I'm going to take a very unhappy look back on what got me here which ought to be as sucky to do as it is worth doing. I tell the kitty baby what dread means. Maybe I'll let the cat in that day for moral support. I carumba. Storm chaser. Commencing to gird my loins. Out for now. The chickens come to roost, they are discovered. You can only skirt the T-men for so long. I guess it's time to pay the piper, the fat one sings her song. What of what is left belongs to who? Welcome to Lulu.